Good morning, church. My name is Charlotte. I'm from the hospitality team in the church. Today I'm reading from Acts chapter 15, verses from 1 to 11. If any of you in need of a Bible, you can grab one from the table at the back, and you can keep it for yourself as a gift from the church. Acts chapter 15, beginning from 1. The council at Jerusalem. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would bear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciple a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Hey, good morning again, church. Uh, again, if you are new, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist Church. Um, before I begin, uh, allow me to pray uh, in a very exciting passage. Uh, Acts 15 is actually like a turning point in the book of Acts. Uh, if, you're, if you've been reading the book of Acts, it's like... Uh, in Acts 15, where we start to see Peter is now uh, kind of leaving the scene. And from then on, we will see that it's now the Apostle Paul as the predominant kind of character because we can see the shift from the Jews to the Gentiles. Uh, but before we kind of look at that, uh, allow me to say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that the word that we have before us is your most sacred word for us. So Lord, help us not just to understand, but to yield ourselves into the kingship and power of our Lord Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen. 
Um, if you're like me, uh, I find meetings can be very boring. Uh, I'm sure you've left uh, a meeting where you felt like it's such a waste of time because they could have just sent an email uh, instead of calling uh, a meeting. Uh, but we also know that meetings are very important. In fact, uh, the outcome of a meeting can be uh, something that can make or break a company. Companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft or, or Amazon, they're not just formed or they didn't, they didn't just grow from a good idea or a good product, but through countless board meetings and difficult decisions that had to be made. But we also know meetings are also crucial, not only for companies, but it can also change the course of history. Uh, for example, in 1776, a bunch of meeting had to take place to produce one of the most historical documents in America, the American Constitution, which united the American states and provide the freedom and the government that they now enjoy. It's from a meeting. Uh, more recently, in 2015, 200 countries met to talk about climate change, to set a goal to reduce carbon emission, um, their meeting to save the planet. On the other hand, in 1942, Nazi leaders met to officially agree that Jews are to be exterminated globally, and they started to formulate plans to systematically get rid of Jews in Europe. See, one meeting can kill millions of people, but another can bring liberation and world peace and even climate change. As much as meetings can be boring, they can be transformative. They can be historical. And there's one meeting in the Bible that completely changed the direction of Christian faith. It was a meeting that officially opened up Christianity to the rest of the world. Because, you know, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we said that we've seen how churches are growing rapidly. Uh, it's spreading further and further and further, which means the bigger an organization gets, the harder it is to manage and the more complex it becomes. And one of the things uh, in particular that, that was becoming a big problem was the different cultures and people and worldviews coming in to the faith. And, you know, as we've seen last week, uh, the Gentiles or people from a, from a paganistic religion, they were coming to faith and it was creating so much problems in the Christian faith. So what's happening is the, the integrity of the gospel is now at stake. And so they had to call a meeting to figure out what to do with these Gentile believers. And today, I want to show you that we can learn four things from this historical meeting, right? That, we can, that it can be useful for us to, to help us navigate with our own very complex society that we have today. And the four things that we can learn are these. The importance of gospel precision, the importance of Gospel coalition, really gospel community. I just needed it to rhyme. Uh, thirdly, gospel liberation. And lastly, we can see uh, gospel substitution, which is the reason that they're able to accomplish what they have. Okay, precision, coalition, liberation, and substitution. All right, let's begin. Gospel precision. As we can see that the, the point, as I said, the point of the chapter the point of the meeting is that they wanted to make sure that they get the accuracy of the gospel right as the church expands, right? The, God, the integrity of the gospel was at stake at this moment. So in verse 2, we're told that Paul and Barnabas was debating with Jewish Christians on the application of the gospel. But before we dive deep into that, here's what's amazing. Because I think it's very safe to say that the Apostle Paul had a very successful ministry, 
I mean, he wrote half of the New Testament. Uh, we've seen wherever he goes and preaches, he, people are converted, churches are planted. But it's interesting that when the accuracy of the gospel is at stake, he didn't say, well, I'm too busy to go in a meeting and debate about this. I mean, he, he could have not care and just move on to other places and focus on his ministry and just keep doing what he's doing, that he's successfully doing. But instead, we're told that he altered his plans and he traveled to Jerusalem to have a theological debate, to attend the meeting. Why? Why would he do that? Because he knows how important it is for churches to have their doctrine straight. Paul knows how important it is to get the gospel right. So again, for Paul, it's not just about his own ministry. He didn't just care for the churches that he planted. He could have just focused on protecting and growing the church under his care. But he knew that the future of the Christian faith depends on getting its theology right. He cared for other Christians. He understood that there is a universal truth that needed to be preserved for all Christians. And so he paused his ministry to address a theological issue. Because it is crucial to get the gospel right if you want people converted and communities transformed. Which means for us, we need to always get the gospel right. We need to get our doctrine straight, right? We can't just wing it. The precision of the truth is crucial. Jesus said in John 8, that if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Which means hearing the right words and understanding the truth is crucial to being a disciple. It's essential for our salvation. See, truth is not just something that works for you and me. You can't just say, hey, what's true for you is not true for me. Truth does not depend on your own opinion and feelings, right? If the, if the engine warning light is blinking in your car, you can't say, well, it looks fine to me. I'll just keep going. If there's a tsunami coming in, you can't just say, look, if I close my eyes, I can't see it. Then it's not happening. Truth is true regardless of what you feel and think. And so it is crucial for a person and for churches to get their theology right. So to say the right words, to preach sound doctrine, because salvation comes from believing and believing from hearing the truth. And this is why, again, we, we, we run countless Christianity Explained foundation courses, onboard courses, all of which had essential doctrines of what we believe in and why we do what we do. Because we're making sure we're getting our theology right. And here's a side note, just a side note, because heresy, heresy, by the way, is not just getting the truth wrong. Heresy is not just someone saying the wrong thing, but it's also not saying the complete truth, right? For example, I find that the problem with a lot of prosperity preachers and churches is not just what they say, but it's what they don't say, right? A lot of preachers with a, with a wrong set of theology will actually say the right thing. You listen to them and you think there's nothing wrong with what they're saying. The problem is what they're not saying. They preach God's love, God's mercy, God's blessings in your life, God's acceptance, but often you don't hear the justice of God, the wrath of God. There's a lot of truth missing. 
And so, again, the point is theological precision and clarity have huge implications for the life of the church. And here's the other interesting thing. Look at how they get their theology straight, which will be our second point, the um, gospel coalition. How does the church agree on sound doctrine? What do they do? They enter a long debate. I mean, that's most of the chapter from verses 12 to 22. There was a long debate back and forth, reading the Bible. They're arguing the Bible. The Apostle James from verse 15, he cites the Old Testament. Paul and Barnabas, they shared their experience. Peter, he spoke about what God has done in the past. You see that? And then by the end, look at verse 22. It says, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided. In other words, they all, after the long meeting and debate, they all agreed. It was a communal decision. And here's the other interesting thing. Verse 28. They said it seemed good when they made a decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They're, they're claiming that the Holy Spirit is part of the decision making. Now, how, how did they know what the Holy Spirit wanted? How, how did they discern what the Holy Spirit's will is? Did they sit around in a circle quietly listening for a voice to come? They, they didn't do personal meditation waiting for an audible voice to speak. What did they do? They studied the Bible together in community. They wrestled together of how the gospel should be applied. They went through the Old Testament. I'm sure the apostles shared what Jesus told them and how he demonstrated the gospel in his own life. And so when they agreed together, they had the audacity to say, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And see, this is one of the good reasons why you can't go about your Christian life without gospel community. I mean, yes, the Bible is sufficient and it's efficient in revealing God's will and purpose for our lives. But the problem is everyone will have their own biases in figuring out how it applies. That you might think, well, I don't, I don't need other people. I can study the Bible, I can do my own research, I can pray to God I, and allow for God to speak. I don't really need other Christians. I can decide what God's will in my life is, what He's calling for me is. And again, technically you can, because God can make His ways uh, clear to us personally. But the problem is, how can you be so sure? With all the pre prejudice and, and biases that we have when we read the Bible, we tend to have selective hearing when we read and study we, we tend to cherry-pick things that we like to do or things that we can do to make ourselves feel good about it. That's the problem. That, for example, when you, when you need to forgive or you need to ask for forgiveness, it's so easy to justify the situation with your own feeling, right? When, you, when you're trying to choose a particular path or career, it's easy to provide a good reasoning to yourself that what you're doing is not selfish, the sin of pride is very hard to detect on your own. And so here's the point. But when you come together and you study the Bible together, you, you can have more confidence that you're reading the Bible right. Why? Because there's someone in there who might not have the same biased opinion as you. And another Christian can help you identify your own blind spot. 
And so when you have other Christians with you, especially Christians from different walks of life and culture and background and age, and you give them permission to speak honestly into your life, and you wrestle uh, through the Word of God together, it's more likely that you will see things that you've never seen before. It's more likely that you are understanding sound doctrine and hearing from God. That's how you know. It's community under the Word of God that reveals. It's community that discerns the will of God together. You need gospel community. You need to be in coalition for the gospel or else you will be just reading your own opinion in the text. So, what was the main problem? What was the biased reading that the church is having? Our third point, they're arguing about freedom. That's the issue. Liberation. See how it starts in verse 1? Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, According to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, here's, here's why this, what this debate is about. Now, we know uh, most of the early Christians were Jews. And because they were Jews, they've been raised to, to follow the Mosaic law, meaning the, the law that God gave through Moses. And the Mosaic law says that if you want to be part of God's people, to be part of the chosen, redeemed people of God, you have to be circumcised. Right? That's your entrance, and you have to obey the law that God gave. Right? And there's a, lot of the lo- there's a lot of laws included. And so in verse 5, they say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They're basically saying, you have to be Jewish. You have to be a Jewish Christian to enter the kingdom. And so when the Jews became Christians, they're still following a lot of this Jewish law. Things that they don't eat, things that they don't touch, things that they do in a particular way. Why? Because of what the Mosaic law said. And so when the Romans and the Greeks and the Gentiles came to Christ, they did not adopt the law or those customs. And one of the reasons why, because Paul and his friends said that you you don't have to. Salvation uh, comes through faith alone. And so a lot of the Jewish Christians were not happy because they believed that these new converts are not obeying the word of God. That they were, telling Gentiles, uh, con- they were telling Gentile converts that faith in Jesus is not enough. That they must add to the faith, add circumcision, add observance of the law. And so verse 5 again, they say, they must, it says. In other words, they must let Moses complete what Jesus had started. Let the law supplement what the gospel is giving. And this is what the debate is about. Again, it is why the most important meeting in church history, because the way of salvation was at stake. How a person gets saved is on the table. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting today, you're new to the faith, let me tell you that what makes Christianity so unique and so wonderful compared to a lot of other major religion is that all or most major other religion is basically advice. They give you an advice. They come to you and they tell you how to get to God. Here's an eightfold path on how to reach nirvana. Here's five ways how to get to heaven. Here's a good advice on how to avoid reincarnation. But the gospel comes in. It's not advice. There's a lot of advice in the Bible on how to live, but the essence of Christianity is not to follow an advice to get to heaven. The gospel says, here's the good news. Here's what's been done for you by Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not something that you achieve. It's something you basically receive. 
you receive it as a gift. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. You don't get it by obeying rules or working hard or joining a community. It's given to you by faith. It's, it, this means all other religion. They might inspire you. They might encourage you to be good. They might give you a good purpose to live by. But in the end, it gives you a burden in life to perform. That all other major religion, it gives you a burden that you have to carry before your life ends. And so the Jews, in the same way, were, were constantly doing that with all the sacrifices, with all the cleansing laws and ceremonies. But see, even they were saved by grace. They understood that. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of a Gentile, putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter is saying, we couldn't carry the burden ourselves. So we as Gentiles, sorry, as Jews, we are saved by grace. So why are we now putting the same burden on the Gentiles? He's saying the gospel removed the burden of performance. It takes off any burden that we have. And so the moment, the moment you become a Christian, you no longer have to perform for God. All the guilt, the regret, and all the things that you've done wrong, it's removed. It's erased. And all the burdens and the fear that you have for the future, that's been removed as well. It removes the fear and the anxiety that you'll never be good enough. Remember, remember in high school when you, you have to do an oral presentation? Right? I remember. I'm still traumatized from it. You, you, for weeks, for weeks you feel anxious, Right? You work hard to get ready. You try to practice. And on the day, it feels like you're having a panic attack, right? You feel like you want to vomit. And then even after you do it, you replay the event in your mind over and over and over, thinking all of the things that you have said and you have done. It's full of anxiety and fear and regret and shame. See, religion that is based on performance is basically a high school oral presentation. It's about how you will look and perform in front of God. And you know that in the end, you'll never be good enough. And that's why people abandon religion because they know they can't carry the burden. But Christianity says, here's Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He took the shame and the guilt on the cross so that you don't have to. Therefore, now you're free. It's like getting a perfect oral presentation score without doing anything. And this is why this debate was so crucial. Because the Jewish Christians were basically saying, what Jesus has done is not enough. You should add to it works. But once you add to what Jesus has done, it's not a gift anymore. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, that if you try to justify yourself with works, then you will fall away from grace. And here's the other issue. It's related to the first one, but it's good to see in, in a separate kind of um, context. See, the other issue is, is the cultural freedom that they have. Again, the Jewish Christians were basically saying, if you want to be saved, you need to, be, you need to embrace the Jewish culture. You need to do what we do. You need to be one of us, right? That's what they're saying. Because if you read all the laws in, in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, you'll see that one of the reasons... One of the reasons that God gave all this bunch of rules to the Israelites is that he 
God wanted them to be separated from other nations as much as possible. So all the sacrifices, all the prohibitions, all the ceremony was there so that they will be separate. They will be holy, to be set apart. That's what it means. So, so to, to be pure, to be holy, they have to be separated from other nations. It was, it was absolutely crucial that they don't mix in, they don't assimilate in with the, with the nations around them. Because God knew if they do, they will start, um, and they start intermarrying, that they will start, they will fall into idolatry. So God created a way that culturally made the Jews so different that if you're not a Jew, right, if you want, if you want to hang out with a Jew at that time and you want to eat out with a Jew, it will be so difficult. It will be so weird because they can't eat like this. They have to wash this way. Like they can't eat this part. It was so hard just hanging around with them that it was so evident that they're different. But that was the point, Right? It was a way of really making sure that the Jews remained separate. They looked so different. They acted so differently. They do weird stuff so that they can be clean and pure before God. And this is why the Jewish Christians were saying to be included in God, to God's people, you have to be a Jew because that's how you tell that you're in the faith. But again, verse 11 says that they are saved just as they are, right? It's saying that they don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. They can remain as a Greek, as a Roman, as a Gentile, and so on. And it was such a big deal for the Jews to say that salvation is now open for all cultures. Now, you might think, well, that's not really a problem for us now. Like, there's no kind of debate between Jews and Gentiles. Well, it's still a problem because most people, most even Christians, most people will, will tend to elevate their culture above others, right? Most Christians will somehow feel morally superior uh, before others who are not of the same culture as theirs, right? You look at other Christians and you think, oh, they should be more like us. They should do more like what we do in our culture because we all have a tendency to see our culture not as culture but as righteousness, right? For example... I won't name the culture, but just for example, uh, when two people are getting married and it's a mixed-race wedding, right? Often one culture will value punctuality as a big deal, right? They'll be, being on time will be very important for them. So they, they, they'll arrive not just on time, but they'll arrive half an hour early. And then you have the other culture coming in half an hour late. And the early ones will say, oh, those people, they have no respect for time. Right? They turn up whenever they want. And then the other party will be thinking, look at these people. They're so uptight. They can't even relax a bit. My goodness, it's a wedding. Or during, during the reception, often, and I've seen this, often one side, one culture will be very loud. They're shouting, they're dancing, they're clapping, and evidently they're having a good time. But the other culture, they're just sitting down, they're watching, they're smiling, but deep inside they're thinking, what a, what a bunch of crazy people. They have no self-control. And the other culture, they're thinking, what do you think this is? It's not a funeral. It's a wedding, right? See, everyone tends to elevate their culture as somewhat morally superior to others. And so we tend to impose our culture on others, even when it comes to the Christian faith. See, verse 19, James said, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't be asking people to embrace a particular culture when it comes to faith. 
it's open for everybody. And this is why, by the way, if you look at Christianity, if you look at the movement of Christian history, it started in the Middle East. It traveled to Western Europe, then it moved to South America, it moved to America, then it moved predominantly to Southeast Asia, then it moved to West Asia, and now it's moving to Africa. See, the center of all other major religions remain predominantly in a certain continent. The gospel is for all culture. It's for all language, for all nations and tribes and cultures. And so Christians ought to be the most culturally flexible people. We should realize that, they, that we are saved by grace alone, just as they are. Which leads us to our last point. How exactly does this grace work? What can we... How can it empower us? So last point, gospel substitution. So as I said, the main point of the ceremonial law, the circumcision and all that was a sign. It was a sign of purity. It was a sign of cleanliness. And so everyone else who's not a Jew and don't do those, those ceremonies is seen to be impure. And that is why Peter, again, remember, he's a Jewish man. In verse 9, he says, God did not discriminate between us and them. Right? So there's no difference. And he purified their hearts by faith. Again, this is very profound to hear from a Jew. That all their lives, they've been taught that Gentiles are unclean. They're impure. They do unclean things. The whole, their whole mindset, their whole worldview have been programmed not to mix with them. And so how can a Jew suddenly let go of those beliefs and embrace, the, the, embrace other people into the circle? Now, here's a hint of how the gospel penetrated their thinking. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, all right, Paul is talking to Gentiles, right, to, to, to a pagan culture. And he said this, In him, you, the Colossian Gentiles, were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off or was cut off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, Let's talk about circumcision for a second. I didn't want to finish with this thought because, um, yeah, but I think we have to. Like, why, you know, you have to ask, why in the world did God choose circumcision as a sign of anything? I mean, it's painful, it's extremely gross, it's vulnerable, it's basically violent. Why did God choose a sign that's uh, this as a sign of being part of his people? Now, in the Old Testament, or in ancient times, when you're making an agreement with someone, you don't sign a piece of paper. What you do is that you act out a consequence if you break the promise, if you break the covenant, right? So sometimes they will kill an animal, cut it in half, and they will make the covenant and say, if I break this promise, may the gods do to me what we do to this animal, which is to cut it in pieces and, and kill it. So why circumcision? What does circumcision point to? What is the consequence of sin? See, in some sense, yes, it's extreme pain, it's, it's punishment, it's shameful, and so on. But the ultimate curse of sin is always to be cut off. That's what it does. Cut off from people, cut off from community, and cut off from God. Right? Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, they sinned. What, what, what happened, right? They were kicked out. They were cut off. That's the ultimate consequence of sin. And that's what circumc circumcision is saying. That if I disobey God, 
I'll be cut out. I'll be cut off. And so when they were circumcised, it means that by making this promise, I'm being included in. I'm part of the chosen people that, that as the chosen people of God. You're not like everyone else that is impure and unclean. Now, let's go back. See what Paul is saying in, in Colossians 2? In him, you men and women are circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And then in the next verse, he talks about death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What Paul is saying, that you were included in. Why? Because Jesus was the one who was cut off. You were saved because he died. You were, you were made pure because he was bloodied. So on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you cut me off? Why have you forsaken me? It means he was cut off so that we can be brought in. That at the heart of the Christian gospel is Christ substituting himself in our place. That he was made unclean so that through his blood we were cleansed. Now when God looks at you, he sees someone who is righteous, obedient, pure, and holy, and loving. He sees his son. Because on the cross, when he looked at his son, you know what he saw? He saw you. And so he poured his wrath on him. And that's why Peter can stand up and say, the Gentiles are saved just as we are. Because it is Jesus who took the ultimate punishment. He acted out the punishment that we deserve. Now, if you just meditate on that, if you let that truth consume you, you will start to see all the other blessings of what it means to be part of God's chosen people. Like Paul and Peter, you will start to see all the other implications of the beauty of the gospel. But it starts there. It starts on the cross. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for sending your beloved son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took that ultimate punishment for us. That you were cut off from your relationship with the Father so that we can be brought in. And so, Lord, help us to understand the implication of that individually and as a church. Help us to spread the good news of the gospel and not put extra burden on people on how to be saved. This we pray in his name. Amen.